Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I am so pleased that you're all here with us today as we embark on our exploration of Act 3 of Richard II. Bring forth these men. Bushy and green, I will not vex your souls, since presently your souls must part your bodies with too much urging your pernicious lives. For it were no charity. Yet to wash your blood from my hands here in the view of men, I will unfold some causes of your deaths. You have misled a prince, a royal king, a happy gentleman in blood and lineaments, by you unhappied and disfigured clean. You have in manner with your sinful hours made a divorce betwixt his queen and him, broke the possession of a royal bed and stained the beauty of a fair queen's cheeks with tears drawn from her eyes by your foul wrongs. Myself, a prince by fortune of my birth, near to the king in blood and near in love, till you did make him misinterpret me, have stooped my neck under your injuries and sighed my English breath in foreign clouds, eating the bitter bread of banishment whilst you have fed upon my signories, disparked my parks and felled my forest woods, from my own windows, torn my household coat, raced out my impress, leaving me no sign, save men's opinions and my living blood, to show the world I am a gentleman. This and much more, much more than twice all this condemns you to the death. See them delivered over to the ex to execution and the hand of death. Okay, well, let's, let's pause and just talk about this speech because whoa, okay, we're in a different play now, right? I mean, yeah, it's, we're it's starting like... to see the Henry IV Bolingbroke. I think this is yeah. kind of where the convergence is kind of starting to like. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and also, I almost feel like it's here just to be like, okay, I know we haven't seen like Bushy, Baggett, and Green be like that terrible yet, but th they are. Here, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, no like, longer. They're about to be killed. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, well, Baggett. Baggett lives. Baggett lives. Yeah, they, Baggett lives. The one survives. Um, <laughs> but it's funny because I was like, whoa, they didn't seem like great guys, but they didn't seem this bad. <laughs> yeah. But interesting, I, I think what's, what's fascinating to me about this speech is, is at the beginning when he says, here in the view of men, I will unfold some causes of your death or whatever. It's, it's such a public condemnation. And this is something we're going to see in, in Act 4, that everyone wants Richard to publicly read why he was a bad king so that everyone's satisfied that it makes sense that the justification for him to be deposed. So there is something interesting in this about wanting to seem to be doing this in the name of justice, right? And maybe, maybe this is the best thing for the country. I don't, I kind of, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of capital punishment, but um, you know, it, it, perhaps for this in Bolingbroke's mind, like if you root away the flatterers, then we could have a, a good realm or something. Did, did you notice anything different, Mike, about the, the language in this speech versus the, the scene that you were in, in, in act two? Um, the scene that I was in in act what, two. Where you're justifying why you're coming back, et cetera, et cetera, to, to York. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's sentencing two men to die. Yes. I mean, I think that was kind of, you know, so, and, and, you know, he has Northumberland take them away. And the, uh, 
as opposed to just kind of doing it himself, which again is that he's putting himself above now. But it's basically, I mean, like it, it still sounds to me sort of justified because he, I mean, it, they, they went into his house and they basically sold off all his shit and, you know, <laughs> took what they could and then kind of used it all up. And it's like, well, what the fuck? You can't do that to a noble. I mean, my God. So, but then he throws in there, like, it, I, he, he still kind of keeps in the, like, you know, I'm near in love to the king still. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to be a traitor. I'm doing this because these are, this is my right. You, mm -hmm. you took from me what was mine. Yeah, absolutely. I love that disparked my parks. I had to look up what that <laughs> meant. And, yeah. it, and it was apparently like an actual thing that it, it meant converting a park to a different use. So I don't know what they had. Maybe they had like a, you know, turned his park into a the football field or something. But they, oh. <laughs> they I it, thought it was, yeah. I might be wrong, but I thought it was something to do with hunting grounds. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. Like they, they Absolutely. Were, like they leased them out kind of a thing. I, I, I might be wrong on that. But and I, again, the leasing, like, right? The, the sort of, yeah. it's seen as a very sort of tawdry thing to do. And I think it's worth noting that I, I, I forgot to sort of distinguish that Bushy, Baggett, and Green are not born to the gentry, right? They were sort of this part of this rising middle class. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot in, um, in this condemnation of the sort of highest people in the realm squishing down the, the upstarts, right? As they were, because yeah. they, they weren't born into the, no the Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, and I, was, I was sort of thinking about the, the confrontation between York and Lancaster and realizing um, last night after our uh, recording that it now means that you are of equal rank as Lancaster. You're both dukes, which is the highest, it's like the highest before a prince, I believe. So you're actually of a higher rank now than Northumberland and Worcester and all of these, all of these guys, because they're earls and you're a duke. Damn. So, so you have not only, you've come back and, and your rank has, has been increased by your father's death. Um, so that's something I think worth noting, just because there's so much in the history of bodies about class, oh, yeah. uh, economic and social class. So I, I thought that was important to, to note as we, as we go through that you actually have increased your, your position in the, the social caste, as it were. What do you all make of this bit about you've made a divorce betwixt his queen and him? And, and divided the Richard and his queen. Is there some historical basis for that? Did they like have her sent away somewhere different or, or was she sent away somewhere? Did she, she wouldn't marry somebody while he was gone or? Yeah, I'm, uh, I would be curious to know if there's, yeah, right. <laughs> um, or is it literally just that they delivered bad news? But I would be curious to know. Are you Yeah, I yes, Bill, last, go ahead. Last night I was having difficulty reading the printout that, that I made of the text. My printer took off the tops of sentences. So okay. today I've got the Arden I have the Arden edition here, which of course is densely footnoted. Mm -hmm. And the footnote to those lines says the impl this implication of homosexual attachments between Richard and his flatterers 
Attachments that have brought grief to the queen and destroyed her marriage has no historical validity and disturbingly contradicts the impression of devoted fidelity between the king and his consort that the play otherwise builds up. Mm. So I don't know. If he, that's that's the take this guy has on 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 that. But um, yeah, and I think there there has been a, a very long. Um, history of sort of portraying Richard as having a much more flexible relationship to sexuality than say Henry V. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it is interesting that there, there doesn't seem to be a, a historical, that is fascinating that there doesn't seem to be a historical precedent to that, that that is something that's, that's lightly implied. But I, I also think, you know, yeah, historically Isabel is like seven when they were married. <laughs> Um, and probably nine at this point, which is just disturbing on too many levels. <laughs> but I, I, I do think it's interesting that it's an accusation from, from Bolingbroke at this point. It's sort of, it's like, it's your fault that the queen is sad. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's really, and it's, it's the second one. Well, I and think they did a really yeah. good job in the, in the hollow crown version of this with with Ben Wishaw is just you know the Italian fashion the yeah. the distraction from who he needs to be mm -hmm. and as, as the person he becomes later who he really is so he's he's distracted by light things mm -hmm. I I loved the yeah I think I mentioned this before but I loved the monkey during the the tournament that he was just like feeding a monkey while these guys are getting ready to die <laughs> it's just like what a great touch um, but also just um, so like yeah. reflective of like how uh, the super rich are <laughs> yeah. in real life like, absolutely absolutely <laughs> it's totally totally true. <laughs> But yeah, it, it, I was sort of trying, so the first cause is you've misled a king, right? And, I, and there's this really interesting, I had to look up lineaments, and I think this deals with personal appearance. Like he's, he's good looking and he's got good blood, you know, <laughs> which is a, kind of a weird thing to say about yeah. somebody. <clears throat> and then you've unhappied him. Again, there's that wonderful construction of putting the un in front and you've disfigured him. Like what? disfigured clean i mean did they did what what is that implication is super weird like did you just make him worry so much that he got wrinkles yeah. like um, <laughs> just stressed him out really bad yeah. <laughs> there's something about the the corrupted blood right there's something you've done something to change him from his from who he is and then there's the bit about the divorcing him from his queen and then it gets to what you've personally done to me so it's interesting that it's Bolingbroke puts those two considerations and accusations before you know at, at first it was like I'm only here to get my titles back and now it's like I'm here for justice because you've misled the, the king you've made the queen sad <laughs> You've taken my, you know, so it's, it's interesting how his concerns are moving further down the list. Um, when he kind of put that to, to York um, mm -hmm. earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of the weeds. Yes. Get rid of those noisome weeds. <laughs> um, I mean, it's moving to more kingly concerns, right? Like 
moving apart from just like personal concerns into a larger scope. Yeah. Absolutely. He's, he's become the gardener of the realm. Anyway, very interesting character development there that, we, that we've got. Shall we hear our, our poor uh, Bushy and Green before their last words? <laughs> every time, Ari, every time. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Zoe. <laughs> She's had, she had a very violent death on, on stage at the very end of Henry IV. Uh, so good. Wait, my yeah. throat got cut in that show too. Yeah, I, 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 I was a big cutting. fan of throat cutting in that show. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> <laughs> Especially when done by children. <laughs> that was my favorite part. <laughs> Zoe was executed by a 15-year-old. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> so good. More commentary. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> More welcome is the stroke of death to me than Bolingbroke to England. Lords, farewell. My comfort is that heaven will take our souls and plague injustice with the pains of hell. My Lord Northumberland, see them dispatched. Uncle, you say the queen is at your house. For God's sake, fairly let her be entreated. Tell her I send to her my kind commends. Take special care my greetings be delivered. A gentleman of mine I have dispatched with letters of your love to her at large. Thanks, gentle, gentle uncle. Come, lords, away to fight with Glendor and his accomplices. A while to work and after holiday. Further proof, question mark, question mark, the Welsh captain is Glendower? Mentioned by name here? Ooh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is yeah. <laughs> he's mentioned in, in this play? Yeah. Yes. But yes. I'd, I'd read that thesis. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Um, actually, you know what? I could, I could be wrong. It's possible. I think that Bolingbroke mentions one more thing about the Welsh in the next time we see him. We'll keep yep. an eye out for that. I think it's interesting that the just to note that gentle and noble, most, uh, sometimes when that's used, it's, it's, it has to do with character, right? And, and gentleness, but it also means gentry and nobility. And again, is a term that distinguishes people by their social class. So I think that's just interesting to, to, to note as well as we go through. Any, any final thoughts about that, that little scene? I guess I... I, are we assuming that York is officially on Bolingbroke's side at this point? I think so. I feel like obviously <laughs> if he wasn't, he probably would have died with Bushy and Green. I'm just like, I guess what mm. I'm most interested in is the fact that Bolingbroke goes straight to killing Bushy and Green as opposed to, I don't know, prisoners of war, you're using them in some sort of other manipulative way. He goes straight to being like, we're going to kill these people. But then like with York, he has leeway. Maybe it's because York yeah. has shown him some sort of redemption, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a that's a great point. And and also again to do with, with rank that um very much it's a sort of the second tier of the kingdom is is coalescing together in, in unity against you know, against these upstarts who are coming not from the gentry to take more control over the realm. So there is something about Northumberland and Ross and, and Willoughby and Worcester and all these people gathering around Bolingbroke. It's like the, the nobility is like, we're gonna band together. And that's something that um, in the, the Shakespeare's English Kings that he talks about that a lot of these, the who, who sits on the throne has everything to do, not just with the divine right of Kings, but also who's backing you 
you know, who's in your camp that matters more really almost than your, than your place in, um, on the Royal family tree. Well, it's also like he can get away with it, right? Like he can get away with killing Bushy and Green because they're not family or gentry or, you know, they're just sort of these guys that were close to the king that he really dislikes. But also York, I feel like because Richard left York in charge, right, when he left. So I feel like if he went up against that, like he couldn't do, he couldn't like harm York and then be like, well, I don't want to be king or anything. Like, I just want my... Like he can still, right now, he can sort of play both sides, I feel like, mm-hmm. whether or not that's purposefully mm-hmm. what he's doing or not. But it's just like, I feel like he's testing the waters. He's like seeing what he can get away with little by oh. little. Oh, that's a, that's a oh, great I don't way. know if anybody's watched that's The Sopranos, but, but there's, um, they get into this little thing where it's like, you know, you're allowed to, to kill a guy who's not made. So it's like, these two aren't, aren't made. <laughs> So it's like, they don't really yeah. fucking matter. So we can get away with it. It's not right. really... It's Tony kind of, says it's okay. It's right. kind of frowned upon, but, you know, we can, we can do it. Yeah. But also, considering that, they have, like, pretty great exit lines. Bushy and... Mm-hmm. Like, they really mm-hmm. do. You know, I'm it's so pretty proud good. of my man Green here. Yeah. Like... <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, some pretty sassy last words. Right? <laughs> Plague and justice with the pains of hell. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that means that Bushy and Green, as, you know, sort of conniving as they might be, are probably true believers in Richard because they could beg for their lives and try to switch sides there, but they don't do it. They basically mm-hmm. spit in his face as they're being sent to their deaths. So they're not spineless. Um, which I feel like would be a really easy direction to go with them. But clearly, based on the text here, like, they are not. And I think that's kind of cool. Absolutely. And I think we'll see the results of when people try and backpedal to a very comic effect in Act 4, where all the nobles are like, I heard you not like Bolingbroke. Well, I heard you. Give me my glove. I'm going to slap you. Like, it's really, really comical to watch how people splinter in faction when they're under this this pressure of a, of a new ruler. It's, what, it's just one of my favorite comedy sequences in all of Shakespeare's. So silly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to us getting to that bit very much. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Well, okay, he's been gone for a whole act. And now he's back. He was in Ireland with the rough, rug-headed Kearns, which is like such a strange... Rug-headed? I had to look that one up. That, it means, like, shaggy-haired. Which I was like, mm. you really dissing mm. their haircuts, Richard? Come on yeah. now. Oh, yeah. And Kearns was, like, a type of very lightly armed Irish foot soldier. FYI. All right. So, information here he is. Is this, this Barkley again? Is this Barkley, but a different spelling? Or you is know, this a different place? Really, I think it is. I think it is. But I've heard it pronounced Barklawfly. Barklawfly. But I, I, that's such a good question. I don't know if it's similar or... I guess Barklawfly scans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always important. I guess um, I'll go with that. Sounds great. But it is a different place then. <sighs> it's a we're not great sure. question. Okay. I am not sure. Place. Different, place? different place? Okay. Cool. 
Barclawfly Castle call they this at hand. Yea, my lord. How brooks her grace the air after your late tossing on the breaking seas? Needs must I like it well. I weep for joy to stand upon my kingdom once again. Dear earth, I do salute thee with my hand, though rebels wound thee with their horses' hoofs. As a long-parted mother with her child plays fondly with her tears and smiles and meeting, so weeping, smiling, greet I thee, my earth, and do thee favors with my royal hand. Feed not thy sovereign's foe, my gentle earth, nor with thy sweets comfort his ravenous sense, but let thy spiders that suck up thy venom and heavy-gated toads lie in their way, doing annoyance to the treacherous feet, which with usurping steps do trample thee. Yield stinging nettles to mine enemies, and when they from thy bosom pluck a flower, guard it, I pray thee, with a lurking adder, whose double tongue may with a mortal touch throw death upon thy sovereign's enemies. Mock not my senseless conjuration, lords. This earth shall have a feeling, and these stones prove armed soldiers, ere her native king shall falter under foul rebellion's arms. So how is your language different than the last time we saw you? <laughs> I mean, a lot of intense imagery. Uh, <laughs> you caught it from the Irish bards, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, He's been through a lot. Yeah. He's been through a lot since we last saw him. I mean, he's pretty, like, beaten and tattered at this point. Um, Absolutely. They're only going to get worse. So. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny. It's like, as he gets worse, his language just gets better. <laughs> it's like, so amazing. True. <laughs> so true. That's how you know. Yeah. Um, I love that he does this amazing conjuration. He, like, turns into a wizard in mm -hmm. this in this in this speech it's very like lady macbeth almost yeah it's very like you know like and that connection to the earth and stuff that's natural i don't know i mean i know that it for him it's different because it's about you know god and god-given right and stuff but it is a very similar sort of like calling on spirits type of thing absolutely and I think it's sort of interesting here, too, that that Richard compares himself to uh, a woman. Um, I feel like a lot of times, mm. you know, in Shakespeare's like powerful characters of womanish tears, things like that are sort of said in a derogatory sense, at least towards, you know, expressing those traits in themselves. But here being used is like a way of connecting to uh, to his land. Like, I don't really know what it means. I just think it's interesting because it's not necessarily the norm for all of these kings and uh, <clears throat> warriors and whatnot. Absolutely. That's, but, a, that's wonderful. Yeah. That there's like the Mother Earth and, and in a sort of patronistic sense, there's a sense of like husbandry to the Earth that definitely pervades a lot of this. But I think, I think you're absolutely right. The comparison of being a mother who's reconnecting with their, their child is really striking and, and unusual. That's wonderful. I love this, uh, just a shout out to, to Robin <laughs> of uh, heavy gated toads. Oh, there's so many moments in Shakespeare where they talk about how someone walks and people like recognize each other by the way they walk. That happens in Julius Caesar. Oh, it's his casca. I know him by his gait. 
Um, and I love that this is like this, this wonderful, um, clumsily moving toads is sort of what, what <laughs> Richard's talking about here, which is just so great. Like what a, they are kind of clumsy. They are kind of funny to watch move. Um, I say, I've never seen a graceful toad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except for in frog and toad. Although frog was always much more graceful than toad, I feel like, but <laughs> that's, that's, I read way too many children's books. They're the best. <laughs> And yeah, the Lady Macbeth, I just really, the the look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. We have that exact same thing going on here. Um, the lurking adder and the flower. That is really fascinating. And now we get a new character. Hooray, more new characters. The Bishop of Carlisle, who is a very cool character, who's going to have some pretty incredible speeches um, throughout this uh, act three and four. Fear not, my lord, that power that made you king hath power to keep you king in spite of all. The means that heavens yield must be embraced and not neglected, else heaven would and we will not. Heaven's offer we refuse the proffered means of succor and redress. He means, my lord, that we are too remiss, whilst Bolingbroke through our security grows strong and great in substance and in power. This comfortable cousin... Knowst thou not that when the searching eye of heaven is hid behind the globe that lights the lower world, then thieves and robbers range abroad unseen in murders and in outrage boldly here? But when from under this terrestrial ball he fires the proud tops of the eastern pines and darts his light through every guilty hole, then murders, treasons, and detested sins, the cloak of night being plucked off from their backs, stand bare and naked, trembling at themselves. So when this thief, this traitor, Bolingbroke, who all this while hath reveled in the night, whilst we were wandering with the Antipodes, shall see us rising in our throne, the East. His treasons will sit blushing in his face, not able to endure the sight of day, but self-affrighted tremble at his sin. Not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm off from an anointed king. The breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord. For every man that Bolingbroke hath pressed to lift shrewd steel against our golden crown, God, for his Richard, hath in heavenly pay a glorious angel. Then, if angels fight, weak men must fall, for heaven still guards the right. Welcome, Damn. my lord. <laughs> Damn. Damn, son. Wow. I mean, he's on a different plane now. He's just, like, gone from sort of pettiness to, like, epicness. I don't, he's they just... have serious drugs in Ireland. On that. <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely found the higher plane. The high yeah. plane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. For about a page. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, again, this, I, I mean, I, I love the, the sort of whiplash of this scene, as, as we're going to see as it unfolds, of just like going from confidence to despair to confidence to despair. It's, it's just extraordinary. But um, something I think is, is such a it's, it's a, it's not like one of the more amazing images, but pressed, Bolingbroke hath pressed. It, it literally means conscripted or drafted to, to work with him, but there's something so kind of visceral about pressing someone into service, like pushing them into the, the ranks and the line that I just love. 
And Falstaff uh, will talk about pressing people into service in uh, Henry IV, uh, parts one and two. Um, but it, I, I just love that, that little bit. Kind of continuing and Myra, you can talk to this more than I can because you know you've played the role, but it reminds <laughs> me a lot. Um, this darkness and light imagery reminds me a lot of kind of the inverse of the stars, hide your fires kind of stuff going on in Macbeth. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. Absolutely. And the nature imagery and Richard kind of having command of the natural world in this, in these conjurations. Um, well, really extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, because I, here I feel like nature is. Um, I'll sit back through this. I feel like nature is sort of Richard's ally here. You're right. It is like a really uh, good inverse of of Macbeth's bit with stars hide your fires because there nature is against him. He doesn't want to be, you know, seen by the heavens. Um, whereas here, you know, it's the reverse of like the sky and the heavens will reveal. You'll see us rising in our throne, the east as treasons will sit blushing in his face. I feel like Richard is almost calling on the same power that Macbeth is trying to hide from. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, that's good. Yeah. That's very good. <laughs> Macbeth is not the rightful king. Mm, and, exactly. Right, and, and Richard is saying that I, I am the rightful king. I have this right. I want nature. The difference between him and Bolingbroke, though, is that he doesn't do anything for it. Nothing, mm. nothing he talks about it is about himself and his worthiness. He doesn't question his, like, what he can do for England, which is exactly why Bolingbroke is coming to attack him. Absolutely. And I think it says a lot about a character based on the way in which they uh, relate to nature. And I think it's interesting that, that Bolingbroke is about changing nature, about weeding and plucking away and making it more orderly. And Richard is about sort of calling upon these epic natural forces to come to his side and sort of encouraging the, the wildness and power of nature to sort of come to him as opposed to trying to cultivate it as it were and the um, desperation so I, of it i like yeah, i yeah. love reading things yeah. like this that are so he's desperate like desperately trying to convince himself of these things and because you know things in ireland are not going well like, yes. the, like the things he saw there everything is sort of revolting against him so Absolutely. he's like trying to find some, I guess pun intended, like some sure footing, some like solid ground. <laughs> like at least I have the earth. <laughs> and Zoe, yeah. so it's, it's, it's interesting on that point, the way he reverses what the imagery we've seen before where he's been compared to us, you know, you're, you're falling, you're setting sun and all that. When he says um, that I you know, will see us rising in our throne in the East, yeah. He's comparing himself to the rising sun. And of course, uh, he's previously been compared to a, a falling setting sun. Mm, yeah, totally. Absolutely. That is lovely. So here comes our first, uh, our first batch of uh, bad news, which Richard's just going to keep getting bad news. <laughs> Welcome, my lord. How far off lies your power? Nor near nor farther off, my gracious lord, than this weak arm. Discomfort guides my tongue and bids me speak of nothing but despair. One day too late, I fear me, noble lord, 
had clouded all thy happy days on earth. O oh, call back yesterday, bid time return, and thou shalt have twelve thousand fighting men. Today, today, unhappy day too late, o'erthrows thy joys, friends, fortune, and thy state. For all the Welshmen, hearing thou wert dead, are gone to Bolingbroke, dispersed and fled. I just want to pause here and talk about the comedic um, possibilities of today. Today, <laughs> I remember when um, one of my classmates, Jane May, did that. It was like, today, today, and she just got this huge laugh because it was just like, after, after all this incredible imagery that just lifts you up, you got like this just total undercut through this very simple repetition. That's wonderful. <laughs> I can never not hear that line that way now. That's wonderful. <laughs> so silly. Do you want me to say it that when we tape it later? Oh no, however you want to say it. I just, I just always, I always get excited when something seems serious and there's a, there, there's a possibility of a comedic undertone. That <laughs> <laughs> always is like very, very fun for, for me. Comfort, my liege. Why looks your grace so pale? But now the blood of 20,000 men did triumph in my face and they are fled. Until so much blood thither come again, have I not reason to look pale and dead? All souls that will be safe fly from my side, for time hath set a blot upon my pride. Comfort, my liege, remember who you are. I had forgot myself. Am I not king? Awake, thou coward majesty, thou sleepst. Is not the king's name twenty thousand names? Arm, arm my name, puny subject strikes at thy great glory. Look not to the ground, ye favorite of a king. Are we not high? High be our thoughts. I know my uncle York hath power enough to serve our turn, but who comes here? So our first whiplash, right? <laughs> We've got heaven's gonna fight for me. Oh my God, I have no army. Wait, yes I do. <laughs> like all within. Wait, yes I do, page. me. <laughs> Are years also passing in this scene? Just like. <laughs> Probably, I mean, why not? <laughs> And this, we're, we're going to return back to this. There's kind of a disparity. The, the number gets repeated a lot. The 12,000 men and 20,000 men. So I don't know if that was just a, a typo. <laughs> because when, when we get to act four, I think Richard, when he's looking in the mirror every day under my household roof to keep 10,000 men. So there, but there's, there's this sense of, or maybe it's 12,000 men. So I wonder why the disparity, but that's, it's probably not that important, but um, it, is, it is interesting. You mean like why he um, says 20,000 here? Yeah, after Salisbury just said 12,000 right. men. I mean, maybe he's talking about his full force, like maybe the Welsh were 12,000 and that, and now he has 8,000 or something. I don't know, but. Um, I thought it was just like a, yeah, disparity. I thought it was just like a, another sort of like, like yeah, or yeah, like another. Yeah imagery thing like my name is worth 20,000 so yeah so, totally ha -ha. I don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that's a completely legitimate <laughs> interpretation absolutely um and now we have a, a, a new person come in Sir Stephen Scroop more health and happiness betide my liege than can my care-tuned tongue deliver him my ear is open and my heart prepared. 
The worst is, is worldly loss thou canst unfold. Say, is my kingdom lost? Why, t'was my care, and what loss is it to be rid of care? Strives Bolingbroke to be as great as we. Greater he shall not be, if he serve God, we'll serve him too, and be his fellow, so. Revolt our subjects, that we cannot mend. They break their faith to God as well as us. Cry woe, destruction, ruin, and decay. The worst is death, and death will have his day. Glad I am that your highness is so armed to bear the tidings of calamity. Like an unseasonable stormy day, which makes the silver rivers drown their shores as if the world were all dissolved to tears, so high above his limit swells the rage of Bolingbroke, covering your fearful land with hard, bright steel and hearts harder than steel. White beards have armed their thin and hairless scalps against thy majesty. Boys with women's voices strive to speak so big and clap their female joints in stiff, unwieldy arms against thy crown. Thy very beadsmen learn to bend their bows of double fatal you against thy state. Yea, distaff women manage rusty bills against thy seat. Both young and old rebel, and all goes worse than I have power to tell. I don't know about that. I feel like you have a <laughs> lot of power to tell. That was some, that was some nice speaking there, Sir Stephen's group played by Stephen Bennett. <laughs> yeah, wow. What about your imagery? Maybe this imagery thing is catching. It's like everyone's getting all amazing with their, their speech. I think it's, it's fascinating that you, you are the first person to associate Bolingbroke with water, which he's going to do in the next scene. But here we have Richard as this golden fiery sun and Bolingbroke as this like silvery, blue river that's coming to quench the fire. That's why it always makes sense to put Richard in red and Bolingbroke in blue. It's just like, it's so, it's so easy. It's like in the text. But yeah, and distaff women here means like women who spin are sitting at a spinning wheel. And the bills is to do with these long-handled spears. So it's like the whole, everyone is, the, the beggars are learning how to use their, these weapons against uh, against Richard. The, all the commons are are rising up as well, which which we haven't heard before. We've heard that they they might, but now we're hearing that they are. So I think that's that's interesting. Was there anything that you noticed, Stephen, about the the language in in this in this? Little no, I mean, I, I I really like the characterization of all of the individual people. Mm. I think that's really it's really compelling that they all have their own agency, right? He doesn't talk about the lords, you know, who who have swapped fealty, but it's actually about the 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 people of England. Popular um, uprising. Right, exactly. <laughs> which is really and and obviously like it's all very visceral and young boys and the women, but like and old men, but everybody wants this. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. And I, I really like this speech. Mm, giving it a little star. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that also ties back to earlier, like Richard was kind of making fun of Bolingbroke for like having, the, you know, the common people on his side and whatnot. But like now those are the people who are behind him. Absolutely. Um, so like, Definitely a bit of an elitist, Mr. Richard. <laughs> 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 Although he does promote people, his all of the people who are closest to him are are not from the gentry. So it is a little bit 
I guess, more complicated than that. But yeah. Well, they're just not as big of threats to him. It's safer to appoint mm. somebody who's not gonna have a claim to take over your power. It's mm. a very good point. It, awesome. it also made me think the little Richard bit right before Scroop has his speech. I, I forget who was saying this before, but about how Richard like isn't willing to do anything. Oh. It's like, <laughs> like revolt our subjects that we cannot mend. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't do anything but be my fabulous self. Like, and I also love like Scrooge's first line. Like that is the last thing you want to hear. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I'm prepared. Like, give me the bad news. He's like, I'm so glad you said that because it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like bear that. bad it's news. Like, it's bearing the news of calamity. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna be your worst messenger today. Please mm-hmm. don't kill me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and ooh, I, w- I did want to point out this, this idea of care being something that's both a responsibility and an anxiety, these sort of two meanings of, of care. Oh boy, is Richard going to do backflips with that word in the deposition scene about the exchange of care and not only, yeah, responsibility and, and duty, and, um, but also anxiety and worry. Um, so we'll, we'll keep a care and comfort are two words that are, we're going to keep seeing up here more and more. Yeah, it's interesting how he uses language to like completely manipulate or, or, or make it seem like he is winning. Like he yes. always takes the bad situation and phrases it in a way where he's like, well, it's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like with his linguistic gymnastics, he's able to Ab- sort of reframe things. Absolutely. There, there was one, I forget which Shakespeare, playing Shakespeare book I, this is from, but just thinking about so many times when there's an exchange between two characters, it's always like a tennis match with words. Like one, one will serve it. And then it's like, it really is, is so fun to sort of follow. So who actually gets the point at the end of this? And particularly in dialogue, uh, back and forth, you know, like uh, with, with Gaunt and Richard, for example, in Act Two, with the sick men playing so nicely with their names and then the turning around, no, you're the sick one, but you're dying, but no, I'm dying, but you're sicker, you know, the, the way that the, the meanings of the words change is, is very tennis-like, and then it's, it's just about who wins the game in the end. Frequently, the person who wins the game doesn't actually have the higher power by the end of the scene, but they, they sure get some good points in as it, as it goes. <laughs> some very good volleys. All right, enough tennis. <laughs> anyway, and after that wonderful speech, I love Richard's response in that first line. <laughs> <laughs> too well, too well thou tellest a tale so ill. Where is the Earl of Wiltshire? Where is Bagot? What has become of Bushy? Where is Green? That they have let this dangerous enemy measure our confines with such peaceful steps. If we prevail, their heads shall pay for it. I warrant they have made peace with Bolingbroke. Peace they have made with him indeed, my lord. Oh, villains, vipers, damned without redemption. Dogs easily want to fawn on any man. Snakes in my heart blood warmed that sting my heart. Three Judases, each one thrice worse than Judas. Would they make peace? 
terrible hell make war upon their spotted souls for this. Sweet love, I see, changing his property, turns to the sourest and most deadly hate. Again, uncurse their souls. Their peace is made with heads and not with hands. Those whom you curse have felt the worst of death's destroying wound and lie full low, graved in the hollow ground. Is Bushy Green and the Earl of Wiltshire dead? Aye, all of them at Bristol lost their heads. Where's the Duke, my father, with his power? All right, let's pause there before we get into the most epic excellentness of the speech. Damn, do you put yourself up there, Richard? Three (laughs) Judases? Each one thrice worse than Judas? Three Judases, yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's bad. We died for you, (laughs) man. That's what I love, too. I love that Scroop is like, Scroop in this scene to me is the doctor in Arrested Development who always says like, who always says like the wrong thing, like, when Buster loses his hand, and they're like, oh, is he okay? And he's like, he's all right. And they're like, oh, thank God. And he's like, he lost his left hand. He's going to be all right <laughs> now on. And it's like that. It's like, <laughs> is like, have they made peace? And Scroop's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, they have. <laughs> it's like a total. And then he's like, actually, they're, they're all dead. So um, it's this total, like, ridiculous thing. Yes. I always love it when we can bring Arrested Development into anything. (laughs) That's just what this reminds me of so much. That is great. I love this. I mean, what's interesting to me is how much more you're putting yourself into the position of being Jesus, right? I mean, Mm. as the play goes on you become more and more you associate yourself more and more with a sort of christ-like figure and i think we we begin to see this with the in your previous speech about you go from sort of talking about the sun being the sun to the angels are fighting for you and then now the people who betray you are worse than judas I, th- I think there, there's something very interesting in that. It's like you need to find, you need to put yourself in a, an epic enough story in this interesting way. You need to, your, your loss has to be the biggest loss in human history in this, in, this, in this interesting, interesting way. And again, like this speech, like your list, it starts with, oh, they're dogs, they're snakes. No, no. No, natural world is not enough. They're Judases, you know? It's like, it's this just incredible crescendo in terms of the, the sort of, how, what can you call them? What, how big is their betrayal? And who is this guy, Wiltshire? Everyone talks about him and we never meet him. What a bummer. Well, he's dead. <laughs> he's dead. But like even the uh, Northumberland and Ross and Willoughby were talking about the Earl of Wiltshire hath the land and farm, meaning they've, he's, he's got it all leased out and it's all basely landlorded, as it were. It's, it's just really interesting. Again, there's, there's, I, I got to add it to my list of characters that are named in Shakespeare who never appear. It's, it's quite a long <laughs> list. And now we're, we're going to get to another, another big change. But yes, Myrie, go ahead. Oh, no, I, was, I also like that going back to the thing about how it was so roundabout, like, they're at peace. No, I mean, by that, I mean, they're dead. And then <laughs> Omar just being like, 
are you saying that they're dead? He's <laughs> <laughs> not explicit enough, right? <laughs> it's like, wait, they lost their heads? Are they alive still? Like, like, <laughs> no, they're, they, they're, they're dead. <laughs> I think it's also shows... Buried and lying in the ground. <laughs> but are they dead? <laughs> I think this also shows... Ariana, what you were saying like earlier on about when Gaunt dies and Richard, you know, takes all his land and his money and all that stuff, how that was even like historically, like that's what people consider his fatal mistake. Yeah. I feel like it comes back here when Richard is like, well, you know, where's Bushy? Where's Green? Why aren't they defending you? It's like you put people around you who are powerless and who are just, you know, your flatterers. And it is about, you know, like who can play the game better. And most of that is to do with, as you were saying earlier, it's just like who is around you. And absolutely. And even the beginning of the play, which alludes to the fact that Richard, you know, was involved in one of his other uncle's deaths. Yeah. It's like he's killing off the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then Gaunt dies and he's rejoicing that Gaunt is dead. And it's like, these are the people that, you know, you should have been paying attention to. It's like absolutely. Completely yeah the wrong direction absolutely and the and the thing about the it's such a strange detail that Shakespeare gives us of of like oh yeah our people at home are going to have these blank charters they're going to figure out who's rich and then they're going to find them for very large sums of gold which was actually something that Richard also did which was seen as sort of his first really bad mistake was just like he just he just find everyone he's like well I run out of money everyone give me theirs <laughs> like <laughs> It is quite fascinating, though. Again, and 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 these people suffer for horribly for the the consequence of of supporting you. And now we're going to get our one of our many epically famous speeches here. And I just want everyone, as 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 Zoe goes through this, to just sort of notice how many um, monosyllabic words there are in this speech, because I think that's always really telling in Shakespeare when you have a, a speech or a, a line of dialogue that's very monosyllabic. It usually means slow down, because um, it's very hard to say monosyllables really fast. But also it always seems to be that the, as the language becomes simpler, somehow it becomes more poetic. And mm. also that it's where the emotional gut punches tend to be. Um, so I just wanted to point that out before we get into this amazing speech. No matter where, of comfort no man speak. Let's talk of graves, worms, and epitaphs. Make dust our paper and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills. Yet not so, for what can we bequeath? save our deposed bodies to the ground, our lands, our lives, and all our bowling brooks, and nothing can we call our own but death, and that small model of the barren earth which serves as paste and cover to our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king 
keeps death his court. And there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarch eyes be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh, which walls about our life, were brass impregnable, and humored thus, comes at the last and with a little pin, bores through his castle wall and farewell king cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence throw away respect tradition form and ceremonious duty for you've but mistook me all this while i live with bread like you feel want taste grief need friends subjected thus how can you say to me i am a king wow i mean mic drop like whoa I think it's amazing that you say deposed three times in this speech. Yeah. Like the yeah. reality is just beginning to creep in on you. I think it's also amazing that about a page and a half before you said, don't even look at the ground, you favorites of the king. Cause we're, we're way up high. And you go from let's not look at the ground to let's all sit on the ground, <laughs> which is it's kind of- It's whiplash. It's total whiplash. Absolutely. It's just extraordinary. I wonder how much do you think, Zoe, this is, this is a genuine question of how much do you think this is a realization and how much do you think this is just like the, the realm that Richard lives in? I mean, he, he just lives in this world where everything is, is very extreme, but, but what is the, the impact of this news on him, do you think? I mean, I think this is a totally different Richard mm. that we're seeing just in this speech, it's, I don't know, it's really interesting. His obsession with death, which he talks about a lot earlier as well, but it's like, it's funny because, okay, it's funny because yes, it, it's a beautiful speech and it's very moving, but it is also out of touch at the same time. Yeah, like he's still... Yeah. He's still Richard. Like, he's still like, I know. Let's all talk about the stories about kings that we all know. Like, he's still just talking about himself. <laughs> he still just wants people to, like, you know. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but in the, in the Mark Rylance Globe one, you know, he's like, everyone sit on the ground. Like, you know, <laughs> he's still, like, giving orders. He's still like, everybody, like, it's the, it's, oh, I'm trying to think of a good, reference but it's the like playing at being like a common person thing oh, yeah yeah he's like you know because kings don't sit on the ground so let's be like the dirty peasants and like sit <laughs> in the dirt um because that's what normal people do right like that's what they do in their lives and it's this like jarring juxtaposition of that of him like playing at being a normal person because mm -hmm. he isn't and also trying to say like, I'm just a human, I don't know what I'm doing. So it's this really sad like appeal to his humanity. And at mm. the same time, he's showing his own like out of touchness with humanity. It's like the polar opposite of Bolingbroke who naturally has this like relation to the common people. Uh, yeah, it's like the polar opposite of that. And then at the same time, you you feel this empathy for him, or at least I do in, in this speech, because he doesn't even know like how to express. Absolutely. That. I love that. And I love that out of touch. I mean, as I think, I think it's in the Thinking Shakespeare book, he, he points out 
you know, this is sort of, again, pure Richard hyperbole, like no king ever died of a heart attack. No <laughs> king ever like, you know, had cancer, whatever, like they were all murdered, really, Richard? That's not exactly like how history has gone, <laughs> you know? He sort of takes out the realm of the sort of mundane death and everything is about these hyper dramatic, like very excessive, juicy, juicy deaths. I love the image that one of my favorite images is of death as a gesture, as like this sort of grotesque grinning gesture sitting in the crown and just being like, <laughs> I got you in the end, you know, like there's something mm -hmm. so, so kind of twisted about that, about that image. And I, I really got a, a, a chill down my spine as you were saying the speech, Zoe, and the, the part that always just destroys me is I live that I live with bread like you. And again, all of these very, very simple, simple, simple monosyllabic words, but the need friends is like, oh man, it's so, <laughs> that to me is like, is the, almost the most truthful thing that he says in this whole speech. The realization of like, oh, I guess, I guess I, I need mortal friends. I can't just rely on my sort of connection as a divine king. You know, I need yeah. people. And there's something so... It is so like he's realizing sad. it. Like yeah. he's realizing it in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, it's, oh, shit. Yeah. It's just... It Ariana? Amazing. Yeah, Bill. Uh, and this, I may be way off base here, but there's certain parts of the speech, the tone and some of the images that remind me of the... Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow speech in Macbeth. The, oh, absolutely. The, um, I was you know, just thinking the same thing. <laughs> just, yeah, the, the just kind of the fatalistic thing, the the uh, allowing the king. Uh, there seems to be a kind of a fatalistic thing that sort of reminded me of that. I just thought I'd throw that in. Absolutely, I think that's that's wonderful. I think there are moments in yes, in this play in Macbeth, and I would also argue in in King Lear. I was where Shakespeare seems to kind of, yeah, veer into kind of like this kind of nihilism that's, uh, or proto-nihilism that's kind that, of extraordinary. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful though, too? <laughs> it's great. I mean, you know, they, they <laughs> the, I forget who said it, but it's like, if, if you can think of a, a human situation or a human emotion, Shakespeare probably said it and wrote about <laughs> it and probably said it better than anyone. Um, but it was, was it the, the Duke's speech about the absolute for death, too? It's just like, oh, yeah. Oh, I none of it fucking matters. You know? <laughs> like, I love you get like a little taste of what's the, the little, little grave. Yeah. Where it's just fine, fuck it. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Oh, I can't wait until we, we, we talk about that. That, that was a. Quite, the, the way that different characters' attitudes differ to, to death, I find quite, quite fascinating. Because I think it's, you know, it's, it's very similar to the way all of us, I'm sure, have, have different feelings and thoughts about death. And when characters change, that's, that's also very telling. When they, they change their relationship to how they think about death, I think that usually signifies a, a huge character shift. Something has fundamentally uh, changed for them. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say um, the, what Zoe just said about, about Richard, like almost realizing in that moment that like he needs friends and feels grief and whatnot. He like does kind of call back to um, just like earlier in the same scene with him calling on like 
he's he's calling on the powers of like nature and heaven and his divine right to rule um and so it is kind of it's sad um that if he is realizing that in that moment that like he didn't really think he was human until now because all Mm. of the things (laughs) that make him human make him not a king like needing food and feeling sad and needing companionship and allies friends uh that needing these very basic human things make him unkingly like so tragic (laughs) that is that's a wonderful point absolutely and also just an extension of that he was just earlier in this yeah we should just call this the whiplash scene in this scene he was earlier concerned with the heavens and now he's concerned with the earth and what's under the earth right like what a fall um in one scene from being a rising sun to to being in a grave which he's going to stay in that that realm of of imagery in 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 the next scene as well Um, i think this is also the scene where you see like how other people actually affect him and have affected his rule as this sort of ineffective king because i mean he how old he was like a baby when he became king or yeah yeah very young and every time he he gets vulnerable or like is about to that veneer is you know starts to crack somebody around him is like come on you're a king you're a king don't be like this you're a king remember who you are you know and they're trying to like comfort him or amp him up or whatever but it's like if it's such it's so sad because if he could find that strength in his vulnerability maybe he would have been a really good king yeah but it's every time he slips into like revealing any type of human emotion people are like come on bro like be a king be be that king you know you are inside and it's about to happen again absolutely that's that's a wonderful point yeah yeah that makes me think like he never had someone to like kind of emulate that duality of like a persona and like a human because like his father died so young so it's like really interesting thing like who failed him like yes he's an ineffective yes. rule but it had to have been like york or gaunt or someone who actually failed him right. mm. i don't know if that's like helpful at all but i just like keep thinking yeah. like even yesterday i kept thinking i'm like who failed this poor child mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? in England because they couldn't teach him how to be like a proper person and they just kept like you know like not letting him be vulnerable and like giving him this like weird dichotomy of like who he's supposed to be and not, not really letting him be a person absolutely and the and the difficulty which is another obsession in in the history plays of what it means to actually be a king you almost like lose yourself you can't really be a person like you have to become the country that you're ruling and the pressure of that i mean all of these kings have amazing speeches about how they can't sleep and they really Mm -hmm. envy their subjects ability to sleep because they just can't sleep and there there's something interesting that a king is is never sleeps is always watchful and and it begins it's very easy to lose humanity when you become a country <laughs> instead of a person so yeah absolutely shall we shall we have another whiplash <laughs> here my lord wise men ne'er sit and wail their woes but presently prevent the ways to wail 
To fear the foe, since fear oppresses strength, gives in your weakness strength unto your foe. And so your follies fight against yourself. Fear and be slain. No worse can come to fight, and fight and die is death-destroying death, where fearing dying pays death's servile breath. My father hath a power. Inquire of him and learn to make a body of a limb. Thou chidst me well. Proud Bolingbroke, I come to change blows with thee for our day of doom. This ague fit of fear is overblown. An easy task it is to win our own. Say, Scroop, where lies our uncle with his power? Speak sweetly, man, although thy looks be sour. Men judge by the complexion of the sky, the state and inclination of the day. So may you by my dull and heavy eye. My tongue hath but heavier, a heavier tale to say. I play the torture by small and small to lengthen out the worst that must be spoken. Your uncle York is joined with Bolingbroke, and all your northern castles yielded up, and all your southern gentlemen in arms upon his party. Thou hast said enough. Beshrew <laughs> thee, cousin, which didst lead me forth of that sweet way I was in to despair. What say you now? What comfort have we now? By heaven, I'll hate him everlastingly that bids me of comfort that bids me be of comfort any more. Go to Flint Castle, there I'll pine away. A king, woe's slave, shall kingly woe obey. That power I have discharge and let them go to ear the land that hath some hope to grow, for I have none. Let no man speak again to alter this, for counsel is but vain. My liege, one word. He does me double wrong that wounds me with the flatteries of his tongue. Discharge my followers, let them hence away from Richard's night to Bolingbroke's fair day. Wow. So now Bolingbroke becomes the sun because the sun, you, the sun, are now in the ground, right? You're behind the earth. And now Bolingbroke is becoming the sun. Incredible. I love this <laughs> group just being like... <laughs> Oh, I, I, I forgot to tell you the other important bit of information here before that speech. Kind of wish I had gotten it out of the way before. But um, yeah, you're screwed, man. Like, it's just extraordinary amount of bad news for one character to get in one. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost comical. I mean, I, I think there's an opportunity definitely for, for comedy. Um, that I think if I were directing, I would kind of encourage because I love it when, and I think it's the most Shakespearean thing to have like moments of comedy around total tragedy. And cause that's so human. It's like, we laugh at funerals for like no reason. And we, we can have moments of horrific depression in following our happiest moments. You know, there, there's something so just choppy about about the emotional trajectory of the scene. Um, it's kind of extraordinary. Any Nasla, other though. thoughts? Oh yeah, Nasla, please. Oh, I just want to like roll my eyes at Scroop when he like, starts <laughs> off by being like, men judge by the complexion of the sky. I'm like, oh my God, just like, get to the point. Like, you know, like, tell me about all of the meteors and the stuff. Like, tell me what's up. It's so funny. To me. <laughs> Maybe he just caught some of Richard's imagery. He's like, "Well, you're just speaking so well. I've got to get my uh, my sky imagery in here before I, I tell you horrible too, news." Like... <laughs> I can be imaginative. <laughs> people don't want to tell him bad news. Like we haven't yeah. seen him like in other plays, right? Like Murder the Messenger. Yeah. But there's there's a sense sort of throughout. Like I, 
I wasn't it to to Richard that somebody he's like, what happened? And there's somebody in the first act's like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, but <laughs> this person died. Oh no, is that Richard? Oh no, that's York. That's York. Oh, that's York. All right, um, never mind. But, but no, like, I, it's very yeah. similar. People the, don't want to bring bad news. <laughs> not wanting to bring bad news is is weird. Yeah. I think the the best example of that is the poor messenger in Antony and Cleopatra, who brings yeah. word to Cleopatra that Antony is married. That's like one of my favorite scenes. It's, a great it's scene. literally the embodiment of like, please don't kill the messenger. Do not have me beaten and killed and thrown into the Nile. Please, I beg of you. Um, the such weirdest an amazing... one to me is still, yeah. uh, it's like, is it Ross in Macbeth who goes and oh delivers the news about Macbeth? And he's, like, like how are they? He's like they're fine. And he's like I lied. They're dead. They're well at peace. Yes, yeah. they were again the peace. <laughs> I love in the Arden edition of that. It's like you know they say well because people who are dead are well, like yes. you know in heaven. And it's like trying to parse that. And it's like, no, he's just lying. <laughs> That's just not true. Yeah. Lying by omission is still lying. <laughs> also, Absolutely. seriously major like Lear vibes again from all of this of just like watching a king kind of implode mm. and give up. <laughs> Absolutely. And blame other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> key element, key element. Absolutely. Well, now here we are. We're going to have our reunion scene of Bolingbroke and Richard uh, for the first time since Act One. So that by this intelligence, we learn the Welshmen are dispersed and Salisbury has gone to meet the king, who lately landed with some few private friends upon this coast. The news is very fair and good, my lord. Richard, not far from hence, hath hid his head. It would beseem the Lord Northumberland to say King Richard. Alack the heavy day when such a sacred king should hide his head. Your grace mistakes, only to be brief left I his title out. The time hath been, would you have been so brief with him, he would have been so brief with you to shorten you, for taking so the head your whole head's length. Mistake not, uncle, further than you should. Take not, good cousin, further than you should, lest you mistake. The heavens are over our heads. I know it, uncle, and oppose not myself against their will. But who comes here? So, wow, what a charged exchange there. I love that little tennis match of the the take and mistake. I, I think there's something really, there's sort of a double meaning, right? Bolingbroke is saying, don't mistake, like, don't mistake what he's saying. And then York says, don't you take more than what you should be taking, lest you both mistake in your action, but also mistake, as in like wrongfully take. So I think there's there's so many layers of, of meaning. I think York, I would argue that York kind of wins that, that little tennis volley there. Uh, point York, um, 15 <laughs> love. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting to me to see not a totally united front, uh, on Bolingbroke's side, that there are still some sort of 
York is still, I think, a little uncomfortable with all this. And I think that's important that there is, that there is not just a, a completely unified front, that there is definitely a little bit of tension within his sort of allies about what's the next move. Oh, and here comes Hotspur. <laughs> Yay. Welcome, Harry. What will this castle, what will not this castle yield? The castle royally is manned, my lord, against thy entrance. Royally? Why, it contains no king. Yes, my good lord, it doth contain a king. King Richard lies within the limits of yon lime and stone, and with him are the Lord of Merle, Lord Salisbury, Sir Seban Scroop, besides a clergyman of holy reverence, who I cannot learn. Oh, but like it is the Bishop of Carlisle. Noble lord, go to the rude ribs of that ancient castle. Through brazen trumpets send the breath of Parle into his ruined ears and thus deliver. Henry Bolingbroke, on both his knees, doth kiss King Richard's hand and sends allegiance and true faith of heart to his most royal person. Hither come even at his feet to lay my arms in power, provided that my banishment repealed and lands restored again be freely granted. If not, I'll use the advantage of my power and lay the summer's dust with showers of blood rain from the wounds of slaughtered Englishmen, the which, how far off from the mind of Bolingbroke it is such crimson tempest should bedrench the fresh green lap of fair King Richard's land, my stooping duty tenderly shall show. Go, signify as much while we here march upon the grassy carpet of this plain. Let's march without the noise of threatening drums that from this castle tottered, castle's tottered battlements our fair appointments may be well perused. Methinks King Richard and myself should meet with no less terror than the elements of fire and water when the thundering shock at meeting tears the cloudy cheeks of heaven. Be he the fire and I'll be the yielding water. The rage be his whilst on the earth I rain my waters on the earth and not on him. March on and mark King Richard how he looks. Wow. So I guess this imagery is catching, uh, <laughs> is catching quickly. Uh, what a speech. My goodness. Uh, I love that little trip up at the end where he said, I, whilst on the earth, I rain, which will sound to the audience like R-E-I-G-N. Right. Oh yeah. And I love that it's at the end of the line, and that it's uh, my waters. <laughs> you know, like there's this oh, wonderful sort it. of back step of of like the to me that's like this wonderful kind of Shakespeare Freudian slip there of like oh no nope, I I mean waters I will rain because I am water and Richard is fire. You know, yeah. there, there's something really wonderfully kind of like a slip up there. I think I just want to. Um, signal this this idea the the summer's dust with showers of blood and and the crimson tempest like the blood-soaked earth this is i think the first image that we get of blood-soaked earth and we're going to get this image repeated oh, yeah. more and more and more times and again the the blood meaning this being about civil war so blood is both kinship and lineage and violence and also sustenance. So there's all of these very complex meanings kind of uh, put onto this very simple 
idea of blood drenched grass. And any any thoughts about the speech, uh, Mike or or anyone before we have King Richard enter? I have a, a maybe a technical question. The because um, mm-hmm. you're an OP person. The uh, <laughs> the so I read it as tears, but would tear mm-hmm. and tear That's be tear. pronounced the the same in original pronunciation? I think I think that this is tears actually because it would be um, it could be both. Yeah, it could be both that the that you as the water are the tears of the cloudy cheeks of heaven but it could also be that your water is that the the meeting of lightning and water is what's tearing yeah so i think it's it's kind of up to you which one you you would like to to use um whichever yeah i I tried to look it up is that is there on the shakespeare's words thing can you look up op or no oh you know that's a great question I am not sure. I know that um, David Crystal has a original pronunciation uh, dictionary that has like the Ooh. yeah. That's that's next on my on my list to <laughs> to add to the the Shakespeare library. But yeah. um, I I think it could either be tears or tears because I think both meanings kind of work here. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those, and, and you know, contemporary, mo- modern English, tear and tear are spelled the same way, and it's all about context as well. So um, I, th- I, think, I think you could, whichever meaning sort of you feel gives you a little bit more juice, I say yeah. always go with that one. <laughs> but yeah, I love that, that now you're associating yourself with, with water and something that's calming and, and cooling, right? And mm-hmm. fire is kind of rash. Um, yeah. And I think as well as the elements, there is definitely a um, association of the humors of the two of you and how different you are. Um, I think, let me see if I can just pull up my thing about the, the four humors and the elements, but um, the two humors that were associated with, um, with hot and fire were... Um, sanguine and collar so sort of uh courage and hopefulness and amorousness was sort of one option and then think tybalt i mean i feel like tybalt is like the incarnation of collar of anger and quick temper and then the two sort of water or or sort of colder elements were black bile or um, melancholy and phlegmatic that could either be sort of despondent or sleepless or calm and sort of unemotional. So I think that also tells you quite a bit about the two of their, what humors of theirs are out of balance, right? In the Elizabethan sort of sense of, of you are in health when your four humors are balanced. And I, I think if I had to guess, I would say that like Richard is probably very, very sanguine. He's very passionate and very sort of, has these emotional ups and downs. And I think that Bolingbroke is sort of at least trying to put himself as this more sort of calm and unemotional realm. And, and those two are sort of opposites, the humors. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hopefully be able to post a little diagram with all these humors. Cause I, I do think that they're very important to understanding character breakdowns in Shakespeare and what types of characters. Because um, they were just such a, an important part of sort of the Elizabethan philosophy of humanity. I love that, you know, the elements 
the elements being at war too, because one of yeah. the first things Richard says when he comes back is not all the water in the rough rude sea can wash the bomb off from an anointed mm. king. So again, it's like, yes. that's before we really get the Bolingbrook water comparison, I think, but it's like a nice little setup sort of. Absolutely. That's a, that is fantastic. I'm going to go back and write that in my script. That's wonderful. So then this, this is wonderful. This gives us such a, clear i think this is one of the moments that it's so clear how they must have staged this at the globe because it's one of those few times where it says enter someone above so richard would have been in the the balcony with O'Murrell and possibly scroop and salisbury and carlisle up there and then the visual of 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 him up there in the sort of godly position for most of the scene and then Bolingbroke and his allies on the on the stage. So it's a fun little sort of theater history little moment. There's not a lot of moments in Shakespeare where it's really clear that there is this separation <laughs> between the, the balcony and there's obviously the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet but it's, it's, it's interesting when those moments happen because I think there's a lot to say about the positioning of the character and status within this scene that is fun to play with. See, see, King Richard doth himself appear, as doth the blushing discontented sun from out the fiery portal of the east, when he perceives the envious clouds are bent to dim his glory and to stain the track of his bright passage to the uh, Occident? Occident. Occident. Occident, which is the opposite of the Orient. So Occident just means it's a fancy word for the West. Ah, thank you. Yet looks he like a king. Behold, his eye, as bright as is the eagle's, lightens forth controlling majesty. Alack, alack for woe that any harm should stain so fair a show. We are amazed, and thus long have we stood to watch the fearful bending of thy knee because we thought ourselves thy lawful king. And if we thee, how dare thy joints forget to pay their awful duty to our presence? If we be not, show us the hand of God that hath dismissed us from our stewardship. For well we know no hand of blood and bone can gripe the sacred handle of our scepter, unless he do profane, steal, or usurp. And though you think that all, as you have done, have torn their souls by turning them from us, and we are barren and bereft of friends. Yet know my master, God omnipotent, is mustering in his clouds on our behalf, armies of pestilence, and they shall strike your children, yet unborn and unbegot, that lift your vassal hands against my head and threat the glory of my precious crown. Tell Bolingbroke, for yon methinks he stands, that every stride he makes upon my land is dangerous treason. He has come to open the purple testament of bleeding war. But ere the crown he looks for live in peace, 10,000 bloody crowns of mother's sons shall ill become the flower of England's face, change the complexion of her made pale peace to scarlet indignation and bedew her pastor's grass with faithful English blood. The king of heaven forbid our lord the king should so with un civil and uncivil arms be rushed upon. Thy thrice noble cousin, Harry Bolingbroke, doth humbly kiss thy hand, 
and by the honorable tomb he swears that stands upon your royal grandsire's bones, and by the royalties of both your bloods, currents that spring from one most gracious head, and by the buried hand of warlike gaunt, and by the worth and honor of himself, comprising all that may be sworn or said, his coming hither hath no further scope than for his lineal royalties, and to beg enfranchisement immediate upon his knees, which on thy royal party granted once, his glittering arms he will commend to rust, his barbed steeds to stables, and his heart to faithful service of your majesty. This swears he, as he is a prince, and just. And as I am a gentleman, I credit him. Northumberland, say thus the king returns. His noble cousin is right welcome hither, and all the number of his fair demands shall be accomplished without contradiction. With all the gracious utterance thou hast, speak to his gentle hearing kind commends. So I just wanted, I realized I took out a, a little sort of stage direction, which is that when, when Richard speaks first, we are amazed. The only person from Bolingbroke's camp that hears him is Northumberland. So this is all directed at Northumberland and Bolingbroke does not hear any of this. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's interesting to me and it's important that he's not saying this directly to Bolingbroke. Um, he becomes a lot more subtle when he's speaking directly to his, his cousin. Any, any thoughts about, about this little exchange between, um, I, I love the fact, so at the first, you know, Northumberland's been accused by York of not, of not using King Richard's title. And I think there's this wonderful implicit stage direction that there's a big pause before King Richard speaks because he is waiting for Northumberland to kneel and Northumberland isn't kneeling. And that is the sort of fire behind this speech is, are you fucking kidding me? Like you are not treating me as a king. Have I been deposed already? Um, and then again, we, we have this, we, we just had Bolingbroke talking about blood-soaked earth. Now we get Richard talking about blood-soaked earth. And then the wonderful Northumberland antithesis of civil meaning of civil war and uncivil here, not meaning civil war, but meaning barbarous. So there's something about like, should so with like this civil conflict in a kind of barbarity, like rip, rip this land uh, apart. I also like how you bring us back to reality, Northumberland. Like Richard's talking about children not unborn and how God's going to strike everyone down. And he's like, okay, so these are his legal arguments and this is what he'd like you to do. Like it just, it brings us back to these sort of earthly concerns with the speech. And that it does seem to have an effect on, on Richard. Um, what were your thoughts as you were, as you were reading them? No, I don't know. I, I've always, I always enjoy reading this play as, as fairly direct and, mm. and people specifically Bolingbroke being fairly earnest in his demands. Mm -hmm. And like in, in this, re it's been, it's been a, an interesting, I don't know, the political climate we're in and just in the whatever, reading all of it and, and thinking about all of it as being totally false. <laughs> and, he, and like them having, you know, like, like knowing exactly where everything is going and wanting it to go there mm. and knowing what they need to say to toe the line. Right. And to, 
to, you know, as, as politicians be like, yeah. look, he doesn't want your kingdom. He's yeah. just bought the biggest army England's ever seen. <laughs> ask for his land back. <laughs> no big thing. Yeah. Tenderly, <laughs> tenderly. Otherwise, you know, he'll kill everyone. Right. Well, yeah. I think it's funny because he's got, it, it, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Absolutely. It's like, if you get, if you, you know, get rid of my banishment, give me all my stuff back, then he's going against his own royal word. And so then therefore he's like, it, then his royal word doesn't matter anymore. So he's not really a, much of a king, is he? So, Absolutely. but if he, if he doesn't, then civil war erupts and he loses anyway, because he doesn't have any power. So it's either like, you can give up the crown easily and you know, whatever, or you can cause a civil war and the blood's on there on your hands mm -hmm. at that point. It's, it's, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's Absolutely. got nothing to lose. He has nothing left to lose. Like Bolingbroke. Mm -hmm. He has nothing. So he's yeah. like, bring it. It's yeah. also yeah. so, it's so embarrassing for Richard because Bolingbroke knows him so well and <laughs> Richard doesn't care about anyone but himself. So even with the fire water comparison, like Bolingbroke's like, I'm going to let him throw a hissy fit and I'm just going to like, <laughs> sit there and take it like he knows he knows exactly where Richard's going with it before he even you know makes a move at this point anyway um Absolutely. and it's so sad it's just yeah. so sad that Richard and we've talked about this version a lot but in the Ben Wishaw one what I really like about it that you can't really do on stage is he's like decked out in this gold armor I think he even has like a crown on and he's standing on the like parapet of this, you know, <laughs> castle and he's like sweating and shaking and you can hear his armor like rattling as he's yeah. saying, you know, as he's giving this speech about like, we're gonna kill you if you don't do what I say. And it's like, you know, it's just so embarrassing. And Northumberland's like, all right, did you get that out? Great. Can we have a conversation? <laughs> Now but let's also be adults. How, but also like how terrifying it must be for Richard mm. to even see someone not kneel to him, like mm. to confirm all his deepest fears about what he's just been told about losing yeah. the kingdom. And you have Northumberland saying like, no, he's still the king, I guess. But then he doesn't bend the knee. And it's like, it's true. All of a sudden it's true. Like it's real. He, Absolutely. You know, it's terrifying. I get the feeling that there's there's a whole world of of subtext that you you have to imagine for yourself so Bolinbroke does his speech about I'll let him have his hissy fit and then York says a lack for woe that any harm should stain so fair a show well whoa what harm are we talking about is yeah. it you know as Stephen was saying is there's his army standing there so the words may be fair but the situation is is volatile and frightening that's a that's a wonderful point and 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 i love there's this there's t this total tension like in bolingbroke's speech where he says we're gonna march without the threatening drum and talks about the the way that the castle that richard is is in is talked about being ancient and tattered and like not in very good repair so that it wouldn't withstand a siege, you know, if it came to that. And then he says, we're gonna, we're gonna let them see our fair appointments, which here means like our weaponry. So we're not gonna march with the threatening drum, but we are gonna make sure that he sees all the weapons that we have. You know, it's, it's very, um, 
it's definitely not a, a as you say, Carol, it's a, it's a scary situation, which I think kind is like, important. Yeah. Kind of like speak softly and carry a big stick. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Which I think is, is very much the, the tactic here. And the sadness of Richard being like, I don't have an army, but like God's doing something up there. Yes. Like you yes. can't see it, but he's, <laughs> he's working on something. He's making those <laughs> angels for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that yeah. goes back to his, um, Richard truly feels that God has bestowed on him, I am king. And if Bolingbroke comes in and he touches on this, yeah, all hell's going to break loose. Mm-hmm. And it basically does because Henry Ford took, took it by violence. He didn't take it by the natural succession. So yeah. Richard, you know, is just touching on this. Uh, and Bolingbroke, I don't know as he picks up on it until maybe the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, hey, maybe I have done something wrong here. Maybe, uh, you know, bad luck is coming my way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when you hear the reprise of this in Henry IV, Part One, when you hear Northumberland and the Percys having this conversation, it's so clear what they meant to do from the start. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. they came to support Bolingbroke in a usurpation of the throne. That was that was the goal. And there's something that haunts the Lancasters about it, it, it's it's like their original sin, you know, in in a sort of in a sort of way. It it, it haunts them. It, it haunts Henry the Fourth until literally his dying breath. He's haunted by Richard. That was actually something I thought the the RSC did beautifully when they had just done their Richard the Second with David Tennant as Richard with very long hair. <laughs> I mean it went like down to his knees. It was kind of extraordinary. But then at the top of Henry the Fourth, Part One, they had a figure with very long hair in one of the balconies, and Henry was praying at the top. And then he like looked up, and it disappeared. And then he started with "So shaken as we are." And I thought that was so wonderful to sort of get this idea that he's constantly like looking behind him and haunted by what has ha- what happened to Richard. And then well, he, he kind of is obsessed with it for, the, for, for two plays after, after this. And well. that's true of his death too, right? Like yeah. historically, he, the room he died in yes. was like Richard's, I forget what, what it was, but it, wall, yeah, like wallpapered with Richard's seal, like <coughs> all around him as he's dying. And it was called Jerusalem. It was called the Jerusalem right. room. And it had right. been prophesied that he was going to die in Jerusalem, which he took to mean that he was going to die the in Holy a crusade. Land. And he's always wanting to go to the Holy Land. And then he ends up, and it's like the most wonderful irony. And he sort of, that's like his last line. He's like, well, I guess in Jerusalem will Harry die, you know? And so mm-hmm. off I am to the room that's haunted by Richard that's in my own kingdom, you know, it's, there's something wonderfully ironic about, about the haunting, as it were. Mm-hmm. So then we have this wonderful little moment with Richard and O'Merle, which I think really develops their relationship. And also remembering that O'Merle is the son of the Duke of York. So we've already got a divided family. York is standing with Bolingbroke and his son is standing with Richard. And that also O'Merle is is both Richard and Bolingbroke's cousin. So it, this is really a family affair here. <laughs> we do debase ourselves, cousin, do we not, to look so poorly and speak so fair? 
Shall we call back Northumberland and send defiance to the traitor and so die? No good, my lord. Let's fight with gentle words till time lend friends and friends their helpful swords. Oh, God. God, that ere this tongue of mine that laid the sentence of dread banishment on yon proud man should take it off again with words of sooth. Oh, that I were as great as is my grief or lesser than my name or that I could forget what I have been or not remember what I must be now. Swellest thou, proud heart, I'll give thee scope to beat since foes have scope to beat both thee and me. Northumberland comes back from Bolingbroke. What must the king do now? Must he submit? The king shall do it. Must he be deposed? The king shall be contented. Must he lose the name of king? In God's name, let it go. I'll give my jewels for a set of beads. My gorgeous palace for a hermitage. My gay apparel for an almsman's gown. My figured goblets for a dish of wood. My scepter for a palmer's walking staff. My subject for a pair of carved saints, and my large kingdom for a little grave, a little, little grave, an obscure grave, or I'll be buried in the king's highway, some way of common trade where subjects' feet may hourly trample on their sovereign's head, for on my heart they tread now whilst I live, and buried once, why not upon my head? O oh, Merle, thou weeps, my tender-hearted cousin, We'll make foul weather with despised tears. Our sighs and they shall lodge the summer corn and make a dearth on this revolting land. Or shall we play the wantons with our woes and make some pretty match with shedding tears? As thus, to drop them still upon one place till that they have fretted us a pair of graves within the earth. And therein laid, there lies Two kinsmen digged their graves with weeping tears, with weeping eyes. Would not this ill do well? Well, well, I see. I talk but idly and you laugh at me. Most mighty prince, my lord Northumberland, what says King Bolingbroke? Will his majesty give Richard leave to live till Richard die? You make a leg and Bolingbroke says I. My lord, in... The base court he doth attend to speak with you. May it please you to come down. Down, down I come like glistering Phaeton, wanting the manage of unruly jades. In the base court, base court where kings grow base, to come at traitors' calls and do them grace. In the base court, come down. Down court, down king, for night owls shriek where mounting larks should sing. Damn! What? <laughs> I mean, wow. I, 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 sometimes when speeches get like that, it's kind of difficult to figure out what, so where do you start? They speak for themselves almost. It's just like the speaking of the words almost does all the work for you. It's kind mm -hmm. of extraordinary. I, I, I love that you have now pictured yourself with a glistering phaeton you are not, you're the son of a god, you know, you're the son of the sun god. And with your giving up the gorgeous palace and the jewels and the gay apparel, you become more and more Christ-like, right? And you're giving up all of these riches for a, a different, um, and there, there's something wonderfully theatrical about, I will change costumes 
you know, they're like, also, <laughs> yeah. Steven, I mean, yeah. No, the association with Phaeton is super interesting because, right, the, the son of the sun god can't control yes. the means of the sun, right? Like mm -hmm. wanting to manage of unruly jades. And also because he's too young. Right? Yeah. Like Apollo's like, yeah, you'll get there someday. And Phaeton's like, no, I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. And ends up burning the world. Yes. Right? Ends up burning yeah. the world. Days <laughs> of failure. Then um, gets destroyed by Jove, right? Like he hurls a thunderbolt like at the chariot. Oh, yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Because he gets yeah. too close to the earth, right? Isn't that, yeah. isn't that part of that yeah. whole? He burns like everything. And yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> it, creates, it creates actually the Sahara Desert. That's, I think, part of the myth. Oh, is that it? Yeah. yeah it comes wow. First cool. I love mythology. It's just oh, so yeah. cool. <laughs> Coolest stories. But yeah, it's interesting, the, the coming down, right? You, you, you went from the sky to the grave, and now you're literally on the, the battlements and then you're going to come down to the court that's on the ground, that's on the earth. You have to come down to reality. There's something so um, wonderful about all those uh, repetitions of the down, 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 down. It's mm. just amazing. I also love that Omerl is weeping. I know. I know. <laughs> I love that. Such a BFF. <laughs> I know. There's wonderful Ben Kingsley quote from playing Shakespeare and he's he's reading something and he he just stops and he goes you know John it just it makes me shake this language it really does and I just like it's such a like sweet little moment but I love that like sometimes you know it, it, the power of language it's almost like it kind of defies you needing to dissect it because sometimes it's just the words themselves act as a kind of incantation it, it it just it makes the the whole stage and all the people kind of this this tingling for me at the at like the back of my neck there's like a physical reaction to the to the words mm. um, which I, I love and because my internet is unstable <laughs> let's move on <laughs> what says his majesty sorrow and grief of heart makes him speak fondly like a frantic man yet he has come Stand all apart and show fair duty to his majesty, my gracious lord. Fair cousin, you debase your princely need to make the base earth proud with kissing it. Me rather had my heart might feel your love than my unpleased eye see your cur courtesy. Up, cousin, up, your heart is up, I know. Thus high, at least, although your knee be low. My gracious lord, I come but for mine own. Your own is yours, and I am yours and all. So far be mine, my most redoubted lord, as my true service shall deserve your love. Well you deserve. They well deserve to have that know the strongest and surest way to get. Uncle, give me your hands. Nay, dry your eyes. Tears show their love, but want their remedies. Cousin, I am too young to be your father. Though you are old enough to be my heir, what you will have I give, and willing too. For do we must what force will have us do. Set on toward London, cousin, is it so? Yea, my good lord. Then I must not say no. That happened fast. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that, that uh, Richard says what you will have, as in, so you, you got your titles, 
I know what you really want mm. and you can have it. He's the one who called him King Bolingbroke um, mm-hmm. first. So it's, it's always fascinating to me. How did that happen? It seems like almost an afterthought in the context of this scene that all of a sudden we're going to London. Which, what exactly is the connotation or the, what are we supposed to infer from them going to London? I, I mean, to me, it's just that it's the seat of governance, mm-hmm. that it's the seat of Coronation, power. Right? And it's where people are coronated. It's where the House of Lords and the House of Commons is. And they're probably going to have something to do with Richard. Um, and well, yeah, so I think, he's like, yeah. Well, he's like, he's like, you, you, you can be my heir now. So mm-hmm. yeah. go to London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. This next course of action, I guess. Yeah. Was the um, Tower of yeah. London a thing at this point? I know that it oh, is yeah. um, Henry the Fourth, part one, it is. Uh, so there's also that kind of sinister edge potentially too. Yeah, absolutely. And the Tower of London, it's, it's interesting. Actually, you know what? I think Zoe and I went there together when we, when we lived in London. <laughs> yeah, um, we did. Yeah, I have so many pictures. That's so funny. But the Tower of London, you know, was like this very grand castle that was partly used to imprison people, but was also like, uh, castle where yeah. people, people would stay live. there yeah <laughs> but there is definitely that edge it's also where people were imprisoned and executed and near the tower of london um is where the the heads of traitors would be put on spikes outside the the entrance to london so there's definitely a lot of subtleties i think in this uh in this the end of the scene um yeah i love this little bit because it is the reversal you see Bolingbroke and Richard totally coming to opposite places mm. where Richard is accusing Bolingbroke of like putting on a show for him yeah, and like basically flattering him when it's not really in his heart. And it kind of, it, like this is the first time I feel like Richard sort of gets one in when he's yes. like, your heart is up, I know, thus high at least, although your knee be, that's like uh, the, the first real jab, I think, at Bolingbroke. And it's this, great thing of him of Richard sort of giving up his power but also being like see what it's like to be a king like sit, mm. let's give you a little taste of what it's like it's that's wonderful and I think it's so interesting that it's it's only when he knows he's losing his power that he becomes much more astute at sort of these tennis matches mm-hmm. which he's going to be he's going to excel at in uh the deposition scene when we next see him just incredible way of playing with words and getting a lot of points in. So shall we on to our lovely queen and our gardener scene? Which here we get that wonderful metaphor of taking care of the realm is like taking care of a garden. And uh, also one of the few plays where um, entirely in verse to the point that the gardeners who would be working class also speak in verse, which is very unusual. Um, so it's, it's lovely. Yeah, this definitely doesn't feel like it should be in verse, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that it is because it's like, it's almost like the whole play is in this realm of upper realm somehow. <laughs> Gives it a very mythic feeling. Mmm, nice. What sport shall we devise here in this garden to drive away the heavy thought of care? Madam, we'll play at bowls. It will make me think the world is full of rubs and that my fortune runs against the bias. Madam will dance. My legs can keep no measure in delight when my poor heart no measure keeps in grief. 
Therefore, no dancing, girl. Some other sport. Madam will tell tales. Of sorrow or of joy? Of either, madam. Of neither, girl. For if of joy being altogether wanting, it, it doth remember me the more of sorrow. Or if of grief being altogether had, it adds more sorrow to my want of joy. For what I have, I need not to repeat, and what I want, it boots not to complain. Madam, I'll sing. <laughs> Tis well that thou hast cause, but thou shouldst please me better, wouldst thou weep. I could weep, madam. Would it do you good? And I could sing, would weeping do me good, and never borrow any tear of thee. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's so wonderful. Like, again, we have the queen with this, the grief and the sorrow. She's so attached to it. I also just wanted to say that the, the bowls is literally about bowling. They're talking about bowling. Um, <laughs> like in Love's Labor is the very good bowler. Yeah, it's, it's, a, I, I, it's a much older game than I initially thought. <laughs> But yeah, wonderful, first of all, to see more than one woman on stage at at a time. It's always great when that happens in Shakespeare. (laughs) And they're not actually talking about men at this point. They're talking about themselves, which is refreshing. (laughs) (laughs) For one page. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, yeah, I just love that little exchange. And I loved um, both of your, the the pace was was really wonderful. I loved it. That was a a very rapid tennis match. (laughs) Awesome. So here come these, these gardeners. But stay, here come the gardeners. Let's step into the shadow of these trees. My wretchedness unto a row of pins that will talk of state, for everyone doth so against a change. Woe is forerun with woe. Go bind up thou young dangling apricocks, which like unruly children make their sires stoop with oppression of their prodigal weight. Give some supportance to the bending twigs. Go thou, and like an executioner, cut off the heads of two fast-growing sprays that took too lofty in our commonwealth. All must be even in our government. You thus employed, I will go root away the, the noisome weeds which without profit suck the soil's fertility from wholesome flowers. Why should we, in the compass of a pale, Keep law and form and due proportion, showing as in a model our firm estate, when our sea-walled garden, the whole land, is full of weeds, her fairest flowers choked up, her fruit trees all unpruned, her hedges ruined, her knots disordered, and her wholesome herbs swarming with caterpillars. Hold thy peace. He that hath suffered this disordered spring hath now himself met with the fall of leaf. The weeds which his broad spreading leaves did shelter that seemed in eating him to hold him up are plucked up root and all by Bolingbroke. I mean the Earl of Wiltshire, Bushy, Green. What, are they dead? They are, and Bolingbroke hath seized the wasteful king. Oh, what pity is it that he had not so trimmed and dressed his land as we this garden. We at time of year do wound the bark, the skin of our fruit trees, less being overproud in sap and blood, with too much riches it confound itself. He hath done so to great and growing men that might have lived to bear and he to taste their fruits of duty. Superfluous branches we lop away so that bearing boughs, we lop away that bearing boughs may live. Had he done so, himself had borne the crown, which waste of idle hours hath quite thrown down. What think you the king shall be deposed? Depressed he is already and deposed his doubt he will be. Letters came last night to a dear friend of the good Duke of York's that tell black tidings. Oh, I am pressed to death through want of speaking. Thou old Adam's likeness that to dress this garden, how dares thy harsh, rude tongue sound this unpleasing news? What Eve, what serpent has suggested thee to make a second fall of cursed man? 
Why dost thou say King Richard is deposed? Darest thou that a little better thing than earth divine his downfall? Say where, when, and how camest thou by this ill tidings? Speak, thou wretch! Pardon me, madam. Little joy have I to breathe this news, yet what I say is true. King Richard, he is in the mighty hold of Bolingbroke. Their fortunes both are weighed. And your lord's scale is nothing but himself and some few vanities that make him light. But in the balance of great Bolingbroke, besides himself, are all the English peers. And with that odds, he weighs King Richard down. Post you to London, and you will find it so. I speak no more than everyone doth know. Nimble mischance that art so light of foot. Doth not thy embassage belong to me, and am I last that knows it? Oh, thou thinkest to serve me last, that I may longest keep thy sorrow in my breast. Come, ladies, go to meet at London, London's king in woe. What, was I born to this, that my sad look should grace the triumph of great Bolingbroke? Gardener, for telling me these news of woe, pray God the plants thou grasp may never grow. Poor queen, so that thy state might be no worse, I would my skill were subject to thy curse. Here she did fall a tear. Here in this place I'll set a bank of rue, sour herb of grace. Rue even for Ruth here shortly shall be seen in remembrance of a weeping queen. So beautiful. There's always in Shakespeare, flowers have a lot of significance and like what they, what they meant. And I wish I had the book with me. I have this like Shakespeare's botany book. It talks about the sort of importance of, of each of the flowers. And Rue was sort of an aromatic shrub that was associated with pity. And there's something really, I think, very, very sweet. What do we think of the, the gardeners in this scene? I, I, I always just loved the, the scene because of, I feel like it's just very easy to understand what they're saying and to make that jump from governing the garden to governing the land. It's just set out so, so clearly. And it does all- tie in with the, with the garden metaphor about Bolenbroke weeding weeding the land earlier yes absolutely um, but it seems like rue is repentance right i think yes i i think there's there's repentance and 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 pity as well there, there's sort of a there's a inwardness i think to the <laughs> yeah i really oh, i really wish i had my my book i'm just me. thinking of hamlet <laughs> ophelia says there's there's rue oh there's rue for you yeah. mm, yeah. mm-hmm Here's some for me. <laughs> that whole bit about the superfluous branches we lop away that bearing boughs may live is just fantastic. Yeah. It's like an order for And the you being a wonderful thrive. gardener, Mike. <laughs> oh, but it's so perfect because it's like, yeah, you got to prune. I mean, whether it be roses or, or fruit trees or whatever, you got to prune. Otherwise, the, the fruit can't grow. Like it yeah. just gets overgrown with shit. Yeah. So it's it's like oh you gotta you gotta prune off the shit and so the kid yeah. can do well. It's, you know, I love it. And uh, yeah, I love the, and the wounding the bark. Sometimes you have oh, to yeah. break a bone so it can be reset. Mm. It just seems um, as though the the gardening though is so much easier than the governning. The, you know, the, the gardeners <laughs> have it down really well. But... Oh no, I try to just to keep house plants alive, and I can't hardly do it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But I also just love the little metaphor of the weeds that um, the king sheltered were actually like destroying him. I like that. Seemed and eating him to hold him up. Yeah. It's quite an image. 
and and to me it also sort of harkens back to the gaunt's image of the insatiate cormorant and the and the pelican wounding itself to feed its children like there's something kind of a little bit cannibalistic about the eating of the self-nourishment or something um, and the association with with the richard and the fall of man as well fascinating Ooh, i love it yeah. that the gardener, the gardener is such a it's it's a small part but shakespeare does this does this a lot has got probably the most beautiful and uh and most understandable words yes um, and 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 he says to the queen, everybody knows this. This yeah. is common knowledge. <laughs> and he he gets it. I mean, you know, she gets terribly upset with him that he oh, is yeah. the only guy, and he so eloquently has symbolized what's going on with the country and um, just a beautiful role. Really, oh, the garden yeah. is a beautiful role to get. I totally agree. I, th I did a, a, a whole little workshop when, when I was a kid that my mentor taught that was called Guards and Gardeners, Attendants and Apothecaries. And it was about developing these tiny little gems of characters that appear in Shakespeare because they usually only appear once. They have this wonderful, usually very distinctive. I mean, if you, the way the apothecary, for example, gets this whole glorious speech in Romeo and Juliet describing this strange man in a strange shop gives you so much to go off of and frequently you know the attendants and the servants will have these wonderfully profound speeches I, I, I can think of again uh, Zoe and I seeing a production of The Winter's Tale at the RSC and there was a guy who came in with the news about the reunion of Leontes and Perdita and how glorious it was. And he just like had the audience in tears and he's just comes in and it he was, was Sam Troughton. He was so good. Was Sam Troughton, who that, who's like super famous now and played Romeo right after that. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was just like one of those amazing things of like this gift to the person playing it. It may not be a lot of lines, but boy, are they, do they give you so much to work with. And the poor queen, it just, it also seems like she's been so sheltered. <laughs> like they're just keeping her away and not letting her know what's going on. Any final thoughts on, on act three? There's a lot that happens here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Definitely the, the turning, the turnkey act, as it were, of the, of the play. It's a lot of exposition, a lot of exposition. Things start happening in act two and then act three is I feel like where the, the play sort of turns. It makes me wonder where, I can't think off the top of my head, like where people usually put the intermission in this play because yeah. I feel like right before this scene would be kind of a cool place to break. Because you have them being like off to London and then when you come back, everyone's sort of like waiting to see what happens and instead you're in a garden and everyone's yeah. like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and oh, they're filling you in. Point. They're like filling you in on everything that just happened. So I feel like it would be a cool spot to sort of like pick up. Absolutely. And f and finally, again, it's, it's with when whenever we have a a scene where it's not, you know, the, the title character, but the people of the realm sort of reacting to what's happening to the kingdom, you know, it always, I think, gives context for these family dramas as well. These are not just affecting these people who are conflicting, it's also affecting the entire realm, um, which I think is always important to sort of contextualize the, the conflict. Well, thank you all so much.